Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. We'll be looking at the subject matter, there is salvation in no one else. As we continue our journey uh, through the little book of Colossians, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? And we're going to be reading a passage this morning that, that is at the heart and core of the book of Colossians. Uh, Beginning there in verse 15, he says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, we know that in John chapter 16, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would not only be our counselor, but that he would be our teacher. And he would bring to our minds those truths that we need to understand and share with others. Lord, as we turn to a rich passage like this today, we do indeed pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our heart and our mind. That we might see and behold wonderful things in your word. What your word has to say to us about Jesus. Lord, that we would grow in him. That we would grow in our love and devotion to him. Use this passage to do that in somebody's life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, usually around Christmas or Easter, I share with you a little poem, and I've got to confess something. I never tire of reading the words of this poem. It's certainly one of my favorites. It's entitled, One Solitary Life. It says, he, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30 years of age. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. 
He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when his friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property that he had on the earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have now come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. I love that point. Now folks, as we turn to Colossians chapter 1 today, it is not a poem, but scholars are pretty much agreed that what we have in verses 15 and following are probably the words to an ancient hymn. That Paul is quoting an ancient hymn that was widely used in the early church. And that's what we find here in Colossians chapter 1. Now, this passage, as I mentioned earlier, is the very heart and the core of the book of Colossians. And in these verses, Paul reaches the highest point that he reaches in the entire letter. Now, I want you to remember the Colossian church is being attacked by false teaching. The false teachers are taking aim squarely at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now folks, isn't that what cults generally do? When cults are looking for an area of doctrine to attack, when it comes to attacking Christianity, generally what they will do is they will go after the person and the work of Jesus Christ and they will try to diminish what we think about Him. Now the reason they do that is because Christianity is Christ. Christianity is a relationship with Him. It's not a code. It's not a law. It's not good works. Christianity is all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the cultists know that if they can undermine the Lord Jesus Christ in their minds, they think somehow or another they have undermined Christianity itself. And so it really should come as no surprise to us that false teachers do go after the person and work of Christ. And that's what's happening in the church in Colossians. A group of false teachers has come in and they are tilting people in their belief system away from Christ. Believing that Christ is sufficient for our salvation. Now the Colossian heresy, as I talked to you about a couple of weeks ago, is generally regarded as a combination or a blending of two different things. On the one hand, there are the Jewish legalists that make up 
part of the Colossian heresy. And of course the Jewish legalists are saying that on top of faith in Jesus Christ you need something like circumcision, you need to keep all of the Jewish holy days and holidays, you need to keep the law, it's a Jesus plus law salvation. On the other hand there are Greek philosophers in the church And they are promoting a special kind of wisdom and Greek philosophy. And what you have are both of these groups combining together and upsetting the faith of those in the church. Now what the Greek philosophers were doing is they were adding to the gospel a very complicated system of dualism. They said that all matter was evil and consequently Jesus Christ could not have been a human being. They were denying the humanity of Christ because they said if all matter is evil then Jesus Christ could not have taken on a human body made up of matter. They claimed that there were a series of spirit beings or emanations that came out from God in a descending order. Hundreds of them, even thousands of them, reaching all the way down, touching the created order. And they said that the lowest one that comes down to earth was Jesus. And so they were denying Jesus' divinity. They were denying his humanity on the one hand, his divinity on the other. Now folks, that's the heresy that Paul is fighting against in this letter. And again, this passage is at the very heart and core of Paul's defense of the person and work of Christ. I love what Dr. John Phillips says about this and what he writes about Jesus. He says, the blending of the human and the divine in the person of the Lord Jesus was like the seamless robe that he wore woven throughout to be one indivisible whole. It is impossible to say where the humanity ends and where the deity begins or to say where the deity ends and the humanity begins. The major heresies of the church have resulted from attempts to define the one at the expense of the other. In the Gospels, Phillips writes, we meet one who was very human indeed. He was born, he grew up, and he worked as a carpenter. He became tired, hungry, and thirsty. He experienced all of the emotions of the human heart apart from sin. He asked questions, he enjoyed companionship, he was wholesome, delightful, and perfectly balanced at all times. At the same time, he was God. The demons instantly recognized him as such and were terrified by him. He had power to turn water into wine or to multiply the few loaves and fishes of a little lad's lunch into a banquet for a multitude. He could walk upon the waves and steal the storm. He could cleanse lepers and heal all kinds of sicknesses and raise the dead. And he could do all of these things as a simple matter of course. His enemies could plot against him but could not harm him until he voluntarily allowed them to do so. Nor could they keep him in the tomb. On the very day he had foretold, he rose from the dead. And yet nobody can draw the line between his deity and his humanity. 
We see him, for instance, sound asleep in Simon Peter's boat. That was his humanity. The next moment he stood amid heaving waves and howling winds and commanded them to be still. That was his deity. We see him at the tomb of Lazarus. He witnessed Martha's grief and Mary's tears and he too wept. That was his humanity. The next moment he summoned Lazarus back from the dead. That was his deity. This mysterious mix of the human and divine passes all human comprehension. Folks, that's what Paul's writing about here. We see here in this text in chapter 1, what we learn here is the marvelous union between the humanity of Jesus Christ and the divinity of Jesus Christ and that God the Father is working through Christ to reconcile a lost world to himself. It is a hymn of praise to Jesus Christ. A hymn of praise for his creative work and a hymn of praise for his redemptive work. Let's look at six statements that Paul gives us to help us to see this. First of all, we see today that Jesus Christ is God the Son. Right away in verse 15 he says, He is the image of the invisible God. Now what exactly does Paul mean here? To say that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the word he uses expresses that when you see Jesus, you have seen God. Jesus isn't simply somebody who is godly or godlike. He is God. He's the second member of the Godhead, the Trinity. He is God, the Son, and the Son of the living God. He is God's only begotten Son. Remember the words of John 1.1 and John 1.1. John says, in the beginning was the Word. And what John was saying is when the beginning started... If you could go back in time, way back in time to when creation began, Jesus Christ would have already been there. There's never been a time that he was not. He's always been. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He's he's using a Greek phrase there that literally means he's eyeball to eyeball with God. In other words, he's on equal standing with God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Scripture could not be more clear about this. The identity of Christ. John goes on in John 1 verse 14 to say, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Word who was with God and who is God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now folks, if you let those phrases sink in, you'll begin to understand what Paul is getting at here. In Jesus Christ, who is visible among the people, one could see what God is like who is invisible. 
The visible showed us the invisible. Now think about it. That could be said of no one else. Only of Jesus Christ. And that's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 says that Christ is better than all the angels. Because what is said about Jesus Christ could never be said of an angel. Now the reason this is so important in writing to the Colossians is because the false teachers at Colossae were saying that Jesus Christ was nothing more than one of many spirit beings who have come out from God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus Christ is not simply like other spirit beings. Jesus Christ is the only. One and only son of the living God. The point is, Christ deserves your worship. Christ deserves your love, your worship, your devotion. The same love, worship, and devotion that you would give to God, you and I need to give to Jesus Christ. Because he is God. He's the son of God. In fact the only way we can come into a relationship with God. And know him and fellowship with God. Is through being reconciled with God through his son. That's the only way we can truly worship God. Is through Christ. And so the same love, the same devotion, the same praise, the same worship that one would give to the Father, you and I also need to give to the Son. And here's the question. Does he have your worship? Does he have your praise? If you're giving your praise and devotion to any other than Jesus Christ, you are nothing more than a foolish idolater. You know, we don't think in terms of idolatry in modern times. We read in the Old Testament about the idolaters, the little images that they would make and bow down to them. Uh, missionaries today tell us about some cultures that make these little images and bow down to them and we say oh we don't do anything like that how foolish but I want to say to you if you are giving your worship and praise and devotion to anybody other than Jesus Christ you're an idolater he deserves your praise he deserves your life in fact every day of my life and every day of your life should be lived as an offering of praise to Christ. Sometimes I want to, sometimes I want to encourage you to, to do a study on your own of all of those great I am statements in the Gospel of John. All of those statements that say something to us about the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door into the sheepfold. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And finally he says there, I'm the resurrection and the life. The point is, we need to understand that Jesus Christ deserves the highest praise. 
He's not simply one among many. He is the one and only begotten Son of God. Second statement uh, Paul makes about Jesus is that Jesus Christ is superior to creation. He not only says he's the image of the invisible God, he goes on to say he is the firstborn of all creation. Now to say that he is the firstborn of creation means that he is above all creation. This is a phrase modern day cultists love to run with. I think of the Jehovah Witnesses. They get it completely wrong. They believe that this verse is saying that Jesus Christ was born. He may have been the first one born, but nonetheless, they say, this verse says, he was born. And that is a complete misunderstanding of this word here. John is not, I mean Paul is not using a Greek word here that has to do with chronology. He is using a word here that has to do with preeminence. It has to do with importance. It has to do with ranking. And what Paul is saying is he is the highest ranking in all of creation. He is preeminent above all of creation. And so again, this is a statement that speaks to the issue of who we worship. Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, is worthy of your worship and worthy of your praise because he is above all, higher ranking, above all that we see in creation. Well, not only is he higher ranking, but he goes on thirdly to say that Jesus Christ is the creator. He says in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. When you turn back to Genesis 1 and 2 and read the creation narratives, it is through Jesus Christ that God did all of that. We see in the creation narratives that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light of the day from the light of the night, the sun and the moon, and God separated the waters from from the earth. Folks, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you need to understand what Paul is saying here that Jesus Christ was the agent that the Father used in creating the universe. All three members of the Trinity were involved back in Genesis 1 at creation. We're told back there in Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God the Father was speaking and we learn here that it was through the Son that the Father was actually doing the creating. And so all three members of the Trinity were involved in the creation. Now let me say that as Christians, though we are not Though we're not to be ridiculous about it, the way some of the environmental groups are, we should of all people be good stewards of the environment. 
Folks, this is the world that our Heavenly Father created. Now, it's been subject, subjected to the fall. But nonetheless, it's God's creation. We ought to care about God's creation. We ought to be good stewards of God's creation. In fact, when you go back and read the, the Genesis narratives about creation, you see that God is getting everything in order so that when he creates man in his image, the created order will be able to support all that we do and all that we need and we're to have dominion over the creation. And so we should not abuse it. We should not squander things away. God created it to be a good world for us to live in and to function. And as believers, we also have to obviously oppose the godless system of evolution. It's a godless system. I don't know any other way to look at it because it wants to erase God out of the picture. And also in evolution, you have everything coming out of a common life source. But that's not what Genesis 1 says at all. Genesis 1 points out that God made everything after its kind. And God put within all forms of life that they could reproduce after their kind. And so we don't all go back to one common life form. Let's move on. The fact that Jesus Christ is the creator who made all things means also that he made you and he made me. I like what King David says in Psalm 139. He says, for you, he's talking to God. It's a prayer of praise to God. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Folks, do you and I understand your life is a gift from God? God made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Think about what he's also saying. God is the one. David is saying there in Psalm 139. God is the one who set a boundary to your life. Numbered all of your days before you live even one of them. Now I know with acts of sin. Either our sin or the sin of others. Somebody's life can be prematurely snuffed out. But other than that, God set a boundary to every single human life. We need to understand that. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, he sure did die prematurely or she sure did die prematurely. Not if we believe in the sovereignty of God. God sets a boundary, a limit to every life. And so we can say to every life, again, accepting those cases of things going on in the world like we see today where somebody snuffs out somebody's life. But just in the natural course of, of things, life 
Life is ordered by a sovereign God. When somebody dies, they die right on time, right on schedule. And I mention that because sometimes families who have a, another family member who's going through an illness and the person dies, they'll say, they'll, they'll fret over it and they'll say, you know, if he could have only gone to see this one more doctor, if he could have gotten this one more treatment, then maybe. And they think, what if, what if, what if? Well, again, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, We've got to accept the fact not only has God created us, but he's also determined that time that he calls us home to himself. The sovereignty of God is over all things pertaining to your life. Let me also say here that God made every one of us exactly like he determined and desired. Remember he told Moses that he had even made those who are mute and deaf and blind. Folks, don't ever ridicule anybody because of their body features or their limitations. Don't Certainly don't ever ridicule anybody because of the color of their skin. Do you realize that prejudice in all of its ugly forms is really a slap in the face to God? I want you to think about it. To ridicule somebody because of the color of their skin is absolutely ignorant. I mean, think about it. They didn't make themselves. God did. And God made them exactly the way God wanted them to be. And God made you exactly the way he wanted you to be. You know what? God must love variety because you turn to the end of the Bible, Revelation, and you see around the throne of God one day, there are those who are saved from every tribe, from every ethnicity, from every language, from every culture. There are those who are gathered together around the throne and they are worshiping and they're praising God. Our God must love variety. I mean, just look out among us today, the variety of people. We're not all the same. You read about the variety God built into the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. Again, back in Genesis 1 and 2, he did the same with humanity. You're precious in the sight of God. You really are. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the creation of God. Paul goes on to say here that you are not just created by him, but you are created for him. You need to understand that you were made for Christ. He's your rightful owner. He's your rightful creator. And so if you are not living for Christ, then you are a thief and a robber. And a thief and a robber of the worst sort. Because you're taking the life God gave you. And you're doing whatever you want to do with it. And if you're doing that, that's sinful. Because you belong to Christ. He made you for himself. 
He's your creator. A fourth statement. Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all creation. Look at verse 17 here. What he says in verse 17. He says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ not only made you but he sustains you. Every breath you take and every beat of your heart is an act of God's grace. Now, I'm not, at this point, going to do what a lot of preachers do with this verse. They go into all kinds of detail about different chemical elements that hold the cells together. Uh, You would think some of them have a Ph.D. in molecular biology. And I'm not going to speak to all that. You can research all that for yourself. It's pretty amazing. But, but I'm not going to try to speak to that which I don't know anything about. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. I don't want to try to sound like one. I'd make a mess out of it. But folks, just think of all that God does moment by moment to hold this universe together. And God could speak one word and it would all come collapsing down. God not only created everything, but he sustains it. He keeps it going moment by moment according to his will. He's your sustainer. He is able to take care of the life that he created. And that's Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus addressed the issue of anxiety and worry. It's an argument from the, from the greater to the lesser. And Jesus' point there is if God made you, if he created you, which we certainly believe that he did, if he gave you your life, don't you understand that he's able to take care of the life that he created? And that frees us up that we don't have to worry about everything. I'm God's child. He made me and he's promised to take care of me. No wonder King David said what he did in that famous 23rd Psalm. With the Lord as my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's able to sustain you and to take care of you. God made you. He deserves your life. He deserves your time. He deserves your energy. And you can rest assured in his hands that you don't have to worry about everything because he sustains you and he takes care of that which he creates. That frees us up to be busy about his will and his business. We don't have to worry so much about our life. A fifth statement that he makes here, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's not only over all creation, he's also head of the church. Now that shouldn't surprise anybody. He's over all. We're members of his body. 
All of us have a role to play. All of us have a spiritual gift to identify and develop and put to use in God's church. But it's His church. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who gives us wisdom and direction. As He said in John 15, He's the vine, we're the branches. We can do nothing apart from Him. The church is not mine. The church is not yours. The church is Jesus' church. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now folks, when he says he's the head of the church, I want you to think about something. Is your life wrapped up in the church? I hope so. And here's why. You read the New Testament and the church is the one thing, the one earthly organization or organism that Jesus Christ promised to bless and to build. He didn't say that about anything else. Some of you need, need to hear what I'm about to say. It's kind of like the you may have heard about the lady who, who she... She passed away. She is a member of this club and that club and this club and this organization and that all. And she finally passed away and somebody said, yes, yeah, she was clubbed to death. Some people, you, 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 you get your life and your kids involved in this and this and this and this and this. And then when it comes to church, you say, oh, I don't have time for that anymore. Are you kidding me? The one thing that Jesus promised to build and to bless, and you're saying you don't have, you're filling your life with all other kinds of stuff, and you're neglecting his church, that can't be the will of God. He's the head of his church. Do you love his church? Are you involved in his church? Do you know what your spiritual gift is and you're using that to be a blessing to his church? He's the head of his church. And then the last thing Paul points out here beginning in verse 19 and following is that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Back in verses 13 and 14, Paul had said that we are rescued in Christ. Our redemption has been accomplished by the very one who is the Lord over all of creation. The early apostles proclaimed their salvation and no one else. You and I have redemption only through Jesus Christ. Now what we would expect to read here next after reading verse 15, 16, and 17. What we would expect to read next is that Jesus Christ is untouched by human weakness and suffering. But that's not what we read. What we read is that the Father through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, has reconciled us to Himself through Christ. Christ is not untouched. Yes, He's the creator, the sustainer of all. He's deserving of our highest praise. But the one who is deserving of our highest praise entered into our humanity. He condescended to us without sin. 
experienced all that we experienced without sin so he could be our sympathetic high priest, go to the cross and die for our sin and reconcile us to the Father. Isn't that amazing? That this God who is the image, he's the image of the invisible God, the the highest ranking in all creation. He made everything in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, all things created through him and by him. He entered into your humanity so he could go to the cross and die for your sin to be your Savior. That's amazing grace. He's God the Son. He's superior to all of creation. He's the creator, the sustainer. He's the head of his body, the church. I started today by quoting from a poem. I would like to end today by quoting from a piece of classic literature. Who in here, probably everybody, has read The Odyssey by Homer? Right? Okay. You remember a story in the Odyssey? He tells, uh, uh, Homer tells of the seductive lure of the sirens. These mythological characters of half women, half bird creatures who lived on an island out in the Mediterranean Sea. And their beautiful songs would cast a spell on sailors as they passed by. The sailors would end up so mesmerized by the song of the sirens, they would turn their ships into the rocks. Their ships would be smashed to pieces. And as their ships were sinking and the sailors' bodies were going into the ocean, the sirens would leave their perches and fly down on the sailors and devour their flesh. So two characters decided... That they were going to approach this in two totally different ways. Ulysses plugged the ears of his sailors with wax and he tied himself to the mast of the ship. His ship made it safely by the island. But Orpheus, who was a musician of legendary renown, took a different approach. When his ship was going past the island, he began singing and playing his instrument. And his music was so beautiful that the songs of the sirens no longer captivated the men on board. They were too busy listening with love and fascination to Orpheus. Isn't that much like false teaching about Christ? It's like the music of the sirens. Perhaps somewhat enchanting and pleasant at first. But it ends up being very deadly. Deadly to the soul. So what's the answer? We need to hear the beautiful music of Scripture, what it says about the person and work of Jesus. And when we hear the beautiful music of Holy Scripture, what it says, 
we won't be tempted to listen to these other voices. Have you heard what the scripture says about Jesus? Have you come to him? Have you been born again, born from above? I want you to understand he deserves your worship and he deserves your highest praise. And again, if you're not giving that to him, you're a thief and a robber and you're an idolater. I want you to evaluate your life. Spend some time this week just thinking about your life, how you spend your time and energy, your devotion. Think about your thoughts, your words, your actions, everything about you. Is it an offering of praise to Christ? Do you live for Him chiefly above all else? Have you allowed other things to crowd out the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ? You've started giving your time and energy. You've started giving your life to lesser things. Live for Christ. Because there's salvation in no one else. Lord, help us to hear these words fresh and anew each time we read them. May our lives be about Jesus Christ. May we be consumed with Him. Jesus said, what's it going to gain a man, or what's it going to profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his very own soul? May our lives be about Jesus. Lord, draw us to Yourself, we pray in Jesus' name.